If you're uh, one who takes notes and you want a title, because it wasn't in the uh, bulletin this morning, uh, the title of the sermon is The Doctrine of Imminency. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-Y. Imminency. I thought we needed something to encourage our hearts, and I hope this does, because it encourages my hearts. So no doubt we live in a troubled world with a lot of uh, trying times. Many things happen in the world that are, the um, uh, vast majority of them are negative, right? Uh, and it's very easy, I think, for us to be discouraged if we allow ourselves to be guided and directed by, um, if you will, the headlines of the day. However, if we follow Paul's admonition in Colossians 3.1, he says, If then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. If we kept our hearts, our minds, our eyes set on the things above, we'd probably be a much more encouraged people, right? A much more hopeful people. Because the Bible is full of wonderful promises by God to his children who have repented and placed their faith in Christ because God is a loving father. And while the world is completely preoccupied with all kinds of things, especially the coronavirus and whatever variant strains are now coming along associated with it, the real pandemic in the world is not that virus. The real pandemic in the world that is not only global but uh, generational is one that potentially affects the hearts and uh, minds of all homes, even those of the believer. It's called anxiety, right? It's called worry. Because when we allow the cares of the world to uh, affect our hearts or fill our hearts, it feeds fear. And in the most severe form of uh, fear, we panic. A lesser form, we worry. I don't know if you knew this, but the word worry actually uh, means to strangle. And and that's what it does to us in our godly perspective. If we allow the cares of the world to come in, it it strangles our perspective. And and we lose focus on those things that matter. We take our sight and our mind again off of the things that are above, and then we lose hope. And we do exactly what Paul tells us not to do. We put our mind and our sight on the things that are on the earth. But again, that's not what God would have for the believer. God wants us to have hope. He wants us to have hope always. He wants us to be encouraged. And he wants us to be uh, to really know that hope that we have in the person of Christ. Not just in securing our salvation, which he has done, but a practical hope that affects the way we live our lives on a daily basis that should cause us as believers to live lives of obedience and to live lives of ever-increasing love for the person of Jesus Christ. In a large part, that hope of that, uh, that hope is an understanding of really what lies in the future. Uh, it's eschatology. That's the, the branch of theology is about end-time things. And eschatology, uh, over all the other branches of theology, if you will, probably deals with that which is enveloped somewhat in a mystery, and that's by God's design. God has given us enough of the future to give us a tremendous hope and a tremendous encouragement that again causes us to focus not on the events of the day, but on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to focus specifically on the fact that Christ is coming back. Now take your Bible and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. In verse 11. Paul says, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. 
who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority and let no one disregard you. Now, when I said just previously that eschatology is uh, enveloped in a mystery, uh, probably more than any other theological uh, discipline, and that is true by God's design, what I refer, what I meant by that statement is that even Christ himself, while he was here on the earth, said to him, said that not even he nor the angels knew the exact timing of his second coming. Mark thirteen thirty two of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. So the timing of the event is obscure, but Scripture is not vague or unequivocal of the promise of Christ's return, the fact of Christ's return. And sadly, uh, in, in the history of the church, especially over the last hundred years or so, there have been all kind of speculative attempts uh, based on current world events to set a date for Christ's return when Christ himself says he doesn't know and nobody else knows. But there doesn't end, or doesn't stop people from giving their various opinions. Uh, a lot of it based on current world events, and they try to set dates for Christ's return, which is nothing more than folly and conjecture. And when that date that the, the date setters set comes and goes, having been discredited by their uh, false prediction, they just double down and put forth another date. And that's what people do. You know the history of this, right? You know that in World War World War I, uh, people thought that was the sign of the end of the times, right? That the rapture of the church was coming uh, almost immediately. And then 25 years passed, and then a, another world war came, and everybody said the same thing, right? They thought that generation that they were living in was the end, and they would be raptured, but they were not. Many people came along during that period of time and said people like Hitler and Mussolini and uh, Stalin, they were the Antichrist, and of course those predictions were wrong. Many date setters came, obviously, at the time of uh, 1948, which is the uh, uh, birth of the uh, nation of Israel. And then 40 years later, in the mid-1980s, which is a great, right, because we're into numbers, and 40 years later, there's a proliferation of uh, end-time prophecy books, uh, predictions about the uh, end and predictions about the rapture, but they didn't occur. In fact, there was a guy one time back in... uh, the day he wrote a runaway bestseller, he proclaimed that he had unlocked the mystery, the prophetic timetable as the return of Christ. So he wrote a book called, remember, maybe some of you might remember this, 88 Reasons Why Christ Must Return in 1988. Now you think after saying that, he'd probably just sit down, but he didn't. He was undaunted, and he wrote another book. And what he did is he just changed the prediction to 1989, and you would not guess what the title of that book was. Right, 89 reasons why the rapture will be in 1989. Now, that prediction wasn't true either. The millennium came, if you remember that, right? Y2K, and probably a lot of you people weren't even alive then. <clears throat> but remember, there was just all kinds of confusion and, and terror and, and stock up what's going to happen when the calendar turns to 2000, the world's going to come to an end, right? And, and so many more predictors came forward, and they all proved to be an error. So there have been many people throughout the history of the church that have come and gone, and they've set days and times. And, of course, when they do that, all that does is undermine the credibility of the gospel, especially in the mind of the unbeliever, and that really confuses them over the true, the unbeliever over the true message of, uh, of Christian, the Christian faith. 
And when these predictions come and go and people make these predictions, I think it even diminishes in the heart of the believer a certain confidence in the Word of God, and especially Bible teachers, because they uh, subvert our expectation that the Lord will return. He'll come at any moment because that's what he's promised. So again, Jesus said himself he doesn't even know, didn't know the time of his return. So I think a little bit of humility would say we probably ought not be caught up in unfounded speculation and sensationalize the second coming of Christ. But the one thing that we do know for sure, it's a cardinal doctrine of Christianity, is the fact of Christ's return. So Paul says here in Titus 2 that we can't look in the future into the secret knowledge of God because that belongs to him, right? But we should consider the future from a biblical standpoint. And he tells us that we should be doing something and we should be doing it now. That has implications for the present and implications for the future. Verse 13, we should be looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And the idea behind that word looking is that of longing, waiting with eager anticipation, certain expectation of the blessed hope. When's the last time you even heard that phraseology? The blessed hope of the church, the appearing of the, <clears throat> of the glory of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's a the tremendous encouragement for the church. And from the very earliest days of the church, uh, the first generation of the church, the apostles, uh, the, the Christians nurtured a certain expectation of a fervent hope that Christ could come suddenly at any moment to gather his church into heaven. James uh, 5, 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord... Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it, and he gets it uh, the early and the late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So again, the fact that Christ could return at any moment to gather his church uh, to heaven is known again as the doctrine of imminency. It's I-M-M-I-N. E-N-C-Y, imminency. Now, the English word imminent comes from a Latin verb that means to overhang or project. And and therefore, the English word imminent really means hanging over one's head, ready to fall or overtake one, close at hand is, is the kind of the idea. So an imminent event is one that is always hanging overhead. It's constantly ready to befall or take over a person, and it's a close at hand in the sense that it could happen at any moment. Now, other things may happen before an imminent event, but nothing else must happen before that takes place. If something else must take place before that event can happen, then it's not imminent. Does that make sense? Makes sense? Imminent. One commentator puts it like this, an old uh, Bible scholar, A.T. Pearson, he says, uh, uh, imminence is the combination of two conditions, certainty and uncertainty. By imminent event, we mean that which is certain to occur at some time, uncertain of what time, right? So it's, it's two things, right? Certainty and uncertainty. We know it's going to happen, we just don't know when. Now again, imminent is an adjective that's used to describe the nature of the event that depicts the kind of event that is always hanging overhead, and again, that could happen at any moment. And you contrast that with the term expectant, E-X-P-E-C-T-A-N-T, a T-E-N-T-A-N-T, right? Expectant. And that's an adjective that describes people's attitude towards an event and that attitude is looking forward to anticipating waiting for the happening of the event so expectant is the idea that we see here again in in uh, titus 2 and 13 that we should be looking for that's expectant we should be looking for longing 
for waiting with eager certain expectation of the blessed hope and the appearing of our uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. So to understand the doctrine of eminence means that we understand that it's the next event on the prophetic calendar, right? What's going to happen in the future? I don't know. I mean, I've got an idea because I read the end of the book, but what's going to happen next? The thing that's going to happen next on the prophetic calendar is the imminent return of Christ, the imminent coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, his return, his second coming. It's at hand. And it's already, it's uh, always ready to befall or overtake us in, in a sense that it could happen at any moment. Because there's nothing else that needs to happen, nothing else that must happen in biblical prophecy before the return of Christ. That's the teaching of the Scripture. So should we, we should always be living our lives, therefore, in a constant, present, hopeful anticipation and expectation that Christ could come at any moment. Because, again, that's uh, the encouragement of, of this doctrine. That's the wonderful promise of the blessed hope of the return of, of Christ, the blessed hope of the church. And, again, it's meant to be a point of encouragement for us. It's meant to be a focus, a constant focus, a central theme in our life that permeates our hearts and our minds, and again, that gives us hope in a world that doesn't have a whole lot of it, right? A dreadful world. I, I keep listening to Christians talking about how, how terrified they are, how hopeless they are, and, and it's because you've got your focus on the wrong thing. We're not called to read the newspaper. We're called to take up our Bibles and look to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, sadly, today there are a number of groups, several of them, gaining in popularity. They call themselves by the name of Christian. They're made up mainly of younger people in the church. They even claim to hold conservative theological viewpoints, but they don't believe in the future hope of Christ's return. It's known as hyperpreterism, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-M, hyperpreterism. Sometimes it's called full preterism. Sometimes it's called realized eschatology. And the hyperpreterists build their entire theological viewpoint on a misunderstanding of Christ's words that are found in Matthew 24, verse 34, where Christ says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. They wrongly believe that this generation refers only to those who are actually alive at the time that Christ actually spoke those words. But that interpretation can't be correct because all the events that were predicted in the passage that precedes that verse 24 verse 34 of the book of Matthew, the desecration of the temple, persecution, divine judgments, the rise of false prophets, heavenly signs, and Christ's return did not occur in their lifetime. Therefore, they're in error. They've built an entire theological system on, uh, around that error. Now, they believe that every last detail of biblical prophecy had to be completed before the death of those who were living at the time that Christ is speaking to right in front of them. Therefore, they believe that every biblical prophecy was literally fulfilled in 70 A.D. during the political upheaval and turmoil uh, that ensued when uh, uh, Jerusalem was ravaged and conquered by Rome and most of the inhabitants murdered. So they believe that Christ's second coming and the resurrection of the dead, the great white throne judgment, etc., and so forth, are all past events. So there's no future prophecy in Scripture that remains to be fulfilled. So they say there's no future hope of Christ's return at all. They say there's uh, the universe in which we now live, that this is the new heavens and the new earth, promised in the Scripture. They say the earth in which we now live is permanent. That sin and evil will never be finally eradicated from God's uh, creation. They say that Satan has already experienced as much defeat as he will ever experience. They say there's no tangible reality of physical existence beyond the grave. 
that in death the believer simply becomes an eternal disembodied spirit passing into the presence of God on a purely a spiritual plane with no hope of any future bodily resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but not much of that sounds encouragement to me. Right? It doesn't sound very hopeful. And for the life of me, I cannot understand why this errant view has become so popular, but it is, and it's increasingly so, a large part because I think a lot of people get their theology off the Internet rather than the Bible. They get their theology off of people who've not been vetted over time, and their teaching stood the test of time that it really matches up to what the Bible says. So it's gaining an increasing popularity. It seems to be an abhorrent theological position that's going to probably stay around. Again, claiming that prophetic portions of the Scripture have already been fulfilled, quote-unquote, spiritually, without a literal response or a literal event happening. It really has disastrous consequences on some of the most fundamental doctrines of Christianity. And obviously, if this is the best it gets, this that we're living in, if this is the best that it gets, it certainly destroys the blessed hope that we've been called to look for. Again, even some within this group deny the literal physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then again destroying the very heart of Christian doctrine because 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen said, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You're still in your sin. Right? If there's no literal physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then we're wasting our time. Right? It's that simple. But the Bible undeniably declares that Christ is going to return. As Christ rose from the dead, he spent 40 days with his disciples. He spoke to them concerning the things of the kingdom. He told them, don't leave from, from Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of God's power to be his witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the promise of uh, uh, the remotest parts of the earth. Scripture says this, Acts 1.9. After he said these things, he was lifted up, and while they were looking on, a cloud received him out of their sight, and they were gazing intently to the sky while he was departing. Behold, two men white, in white clothing stood beside them, and he said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So regardless of what people want to believe or whatever quote-unquote theological position I guess they want to hold, whatever they say, Jesus Christ is coming back again, amen? He's coming back. Do we not every time we take the Lord's Supper together proclaim his death till he comes right all of human history all of human history all of time really surrounds five great historical events the first event is the event of creation second event is the fall of man third is the incarnation of christ the first advent if you will the first coming of christ fourth the events of the cross and the resurrection and the fifth event that marks human history is the second coming of the lord jesus christ when he returns and when he sets all things right. Now, all of these have already occurred in the past. They're historical reality except one of them. The only thing that remains is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes and gathers his church unto himself and establishes his earthly kingdom, vanquishes all of his enemies, and sets history right in regard to the affairs of mankind. So what does that mean? It means we're four-fifths of the way through human history. All right, four-fifths of the way through all the major events of history. And all of human history, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know where things are going. I know where things are going. I've read the book. Everything is coming to a final conclusion, an eschatological conclusion already ordained by God, foretold in Scripture, and it can happen at any moment. That's the return of Christ, and that's the exaltation of his Son. 
We've got to start thinking biblically as believers in a world full of chaos. I don't know if you've noticed, but most people that are talking in the world don't know anything. Right? They're unbelievers. And the Bible says, we talked about this in small group the other night, they're unbelievers. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So the fools who say there are no God are on the TV, they're on the radio, they're on every kind of public square giving us quote-unquote information, trying to tell us facts that they have no concept of because they won't bow the knee and acknowledge the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So your fool may be better than somebody else's fool, but they're still a fool if they don't acknowledge the person of Jesus Christ. And they're telling us things that are just not true. I've said it from the pulpit numerous times. There's nobody out there that I've heard in a public venue that is promoting righteousness, that is promoting repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is saying, if we don't bow down, you're in a whole lot of trouble. All I keep hearing is people saying, vote for me and I'll fix your problems. Yeah, vote for me and I'll raise your taxes, right? I mean, that's what you hear. So again, we are fastly approaching a final conclusion, and it surrounds the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, the Bible says it's either going to be a time of great rejoicing, or it's going to be a time of great sadness, terror, and judgment. Second Thessalonians 1, seven. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe, our testimony to you uh, was, for our testimony to you was believed. Again, it's going to be either a time of great rejoicing or it's going to be a time of great sadness and terror when Jesus Christ comes back, but he's coming back. And again, for us as believers, the doctrine of the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, is meant to give us hope in times of difficulty. But again, sadly, it's a doctrine that has fallen somewhat on hard times. Again, just ask yourself, when's the last time you heard anybody speak on it? When's the last time that you heard anybody discuss this doctrine? I mean, obviously, it's one of the major doctrines that's being promoted now in the, in the collective church, right? I mean, I'm hearing it all the time. I'm not hearing it a bit. I'm hearing all kinds of social justice stuff and all kinds of things that are tied uh, to time and trying to correct problems in time and not with a view to Christ, not with a view to the future. I don't know if you knew this, but it's estimated that in the New Testament that it mentions the second coming of Christ over 300 times. So what? Well, there's just about 300 chapters in the Bible or in the New Testament, right? So it's 300 times the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is mentioned in the New Testament it has about 300 chapters or so. So that means on average there's some reference to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in almost every chapter of the New Testament. That's an average, right? We're not saying it's in every single chapter. But the Lord's return is a very uh, a prominent doctrine, something that's very taught uh, proportionally in almost every single chapter of the New Testament. Right? We understand that there's some chapters that's not. We understand that there's some chapters that in the New Testament epistles that have many references, uh, several references to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's prominent in the New Testament. Do you know how many times the doctrine of baptism is mentioned in the New Testament? I'll tell you, 20. I knew you'd ask, so I looked it up. It's 20. Do you know that we have denominations that are formed around the doctrine of baptism, and these people call themselves Baptists? And I understand there are about 20 different flavors, 20 different kinds of Baptists. And I find that interesting. We have denominations that call themselves Baptists in a doctrine that's only mentioned 20 times in the New Testament, but we don't have any denominations named the Lord's Second Coming. 
right? Or the Lord's Second Advent denomination. And how about the Lord's Supper? How many times is that mentioned in the New Testament? Would you be astonished if I told you six? Six times. And it's not in 20 of the 21 epistles of the New Testament. Some groups that make a big deal over the Lord's Supper, uh, dividing over the manner and the style and the frequency, even dividing over who can partake of the Lord's Supper, either practicing an open or closed communion. So you have to stop and wonder why the second coming of Christ is not as big of an issue in the church as baptism or the Lord's Supper in so many churches. Maybe it's because we pay attention to uh, secondary issues and not pay enough attention to primary issues. Maybe. And maybe it's because we as New Testament believers focus so much on the first coming of Christ and all that means we disproportionately discuss and understand the second coming of Christ. So perhaps we choose portions of Scripture and hold on to them, therefore de-emphasizing other portions of Scripture and failing to realize the hope that we have in the second coming. But tonight I'm going to help, I hope, change that. I want to give you hope in Christ. I want you to be encouraged by the biblical doctrine that Christ is coming again. And I want you to see that from the pages of Scripture. I want you to see it yourself. That the entire Scripture, from beginning to end, declares this marvelous truth, the second coming. And it's a fact that we need to emphasize more. It's a fact that we need to be confidently reminded of for ourselves and for each other that, again, the Bible teaches this tremendous blessed hope. And what we're going to do is I'm going to do a quick overview. And when you hear me say the word quick, you know you're going to sit down there and we're going to be here a while. But it's quick. And you're going to turn to a lot of different passages. All right? I want you to see the hope we have of the second coming. So I want you to go back to the beginning. Take your Bible and open the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, Genesis 3.15 is not specifically a second coming text, but it certainly sets up the initial hope of looking for the coming of the Messiah. And it sets that fact forth from the very beginning of time that men were looking forward to the coming of the Savior. And you'll see, as we read the verse, you'll see that the verse certainly does fit into the overall teaching of the second coming of Christ. You remember the context of the story, Genesis chapter 3, we're in the fall here. Adam and Eve of uh, the woman, or Adam and the woman at the time, they've uh, sinned against their uh, uh, creator. Uh, God has said to the serpent who deceived them, Genesis 3, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, again, that's the first declaration of hope in the Bible. It's known as the Proto-Evangelion. means the first call of the gospel. There's someone who's going to come and help solve our situation. There's going to be a continuing battle, a continuing conflict, however, between Satan and his seed and the seed of the woman, and the seed of the woman is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's going to be an ultimate confrontation in which they shall clash. Uh, Again, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall be bruised on his heel, but the text says that Satan will experience a mortal wound. He'll be crushed on his head. So at the cross, obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ comes and he overcomes both sin and uh, Satan and and death at the resurrection, obviously, but he overcomes sin and Satan who holds men in bondage. And Christ suffers in that battle at the cross. He's wounded, but ultimately he's going to be victorious, right? Because he is going to defeat death. And again, the cross is not the end of the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, right? It's not the end of the battle. Romans 16, verse 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So at the cross, the legal basis of our redemption was accomplished. 
But the final crushing of Satan has not yet come. It's not complete. So with victory secured and sin and death and Satan dealt with, uh, with the judgment already pronounced, the execution of that judgment awaits a future time when Satan is bound and then ultimately cast into the lake of fire. That necessitates the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He's got to come again a second time to secure the first promise of the gospel, to put all of his enemies under his feet, right? to fulfill Romans 16.20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now turn over to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. Very familiar portion of scripture that has a, uh, both a first and second coming view of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For a child will be born to us, the son will be given. That's the first coming, right? The anticipation of the angel's promise to Mary in Luke one thirty-five. But the rest of the verse speaks to the fact that Christ will come and he will be a king in glory upon David's throne on the earth. Child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the hosts will accomplish this. Christ himself says in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, he again describes his second coming. He describes it in a future time where he will literally assume the throne of David. Matthew 25, verse 31. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, exactly like Isaiah said. Micah 4, 3 speaks again of this future promise of a coming king and the the coming king in his kingdom in the time of peace under Christ's rule. Micah 4, 3 and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty and distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Look over to Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1. This is the passage of Scripture that the Lord Jesus turned to in Luke chapter 4 when he entered his hometown synagogue in Nazareth and took up the scroll and began to read. He took up the scroll, the Lord did, and he began to read out of this portion of Scripture. Isaiah 61.1 The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he stopped right there mid-sentence. Why is that? Because the rest of the reading there in the chapter in Isaiah 61 speaks about the blessings of the millennial kingdom. Verse 11, when the earth brings forth sprouts and the garden causes things to be sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. So Christ deliberately stops his reading in mid-sentence of the text there because, again, of what it says in verse 2 of Isaiah 61, verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance. Of our God. So the day of vengeance of our God speaks to the issue of the second coming, the day when Christ will pour out his wrath upon those who have opposed him. He comes the first time for blessing, he comes the second time to set all things right, he comes in judgment. Flip over a few more pages, a few more books to the book of Zechariah. 
Zechariah 14. And if you're having a hard time finding Zechariah, go to the book of Matthew, and then just turn back two books. You have Malachi, then Zechariah. Zechariah 14, verse 4. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. Uh, on the east, the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of it will move, half of the mountain will move towards the north, and the other half towards the south. Verse 5, you will flee by the uh, valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach uh, to Azeel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Verse 6, there will be in that day no light, and luminaries will dwindle, for it will be a unique day which is known uh, to the Lord, neither day nor night. It will come about in that evening when there will be light, and in the, that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, the other half towards the western sea. It will be summer as well as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Look, nothing like that happened at Christ's first coming. So again, it's a prophecy of his second advent, his second coming. When he comes and sets all things right. Turn over just one more book, Malachi chapter 4. The next book over, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi 4 verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaffed, and the day is coming, uh, and the day that is coming will be will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. A day is coming, a day that God is going to punish the wicked and deliver the godly. It's the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord, again, anticipates the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he came the first time as a suffering servant. He comes the second time as the conquering king and judge. And fire, burning, speaks of this consuming judgment for all who refuse to repent. Verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves in the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day in which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Again, the wicked are going to be utterly devoured, but the righteous are going to be cared for. The righteous are going to enjoy God's goodness and God's provision. Verse 5, verse five behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great terrible day of the Lord. Again, that's the Second coming of Christ, verse 6, and he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Again, that's the very opposite of what happened the first time the Lord Jesus Christ, when he first came to the earth. So the prophet Malachi is anticipating a, a great societal repentance in the future, right? Uh, and uh, that the earth is going to be restored, the curse is going to be reversed, that his kingdom, God's Christ's kingdom will be established, and Messiah is going to reign. Right? Again, nothing happened like that at the first coming. He was rejected, despised. So the last promise in the Old Testament is a promise concerning the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Keep turning over. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Very first book, very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Son of Abraham, the fact that Christ is called here the son of David is evidence of the fact that he is looked upon as the one who will come and sit on David's throne and fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah and his earthly rule and his second coming. Turn over a few chapters over to Matthew 24. This is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. 
on the Mount of Olives, right? Christ promises to return. Matthew 24, Matthew 25, Luke 21. The entire chapters speak to these issues. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to a point, uh, came up to point out the temple building to them. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly a city that not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. Drop down to verse 27. Here's the answer. Verse 27, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there will be vultures will gather. Verse 29, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Verse 30, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will look and see, uh, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds, uh, of the sky with great power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds uh, from one end of the sky to the other. Right? Jesus Christ says again he's coming back. Drop down to verse 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. Verse 37, for the coming of Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. They did not understand until a flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there shall be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. And one will be taken, one will be left. That's separation. That's uh, sheep and goats being headed in different directions, separation. One is going to go to judgment, one's going to go to eternal life. Now, what was it like in the times of Noah? Well, guess what? Very much like our times. It was a world full of wickedness. It was a time where people were doing whatever they thought was right in their own eyes, whatever seemed right to them. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. You'll notice that there was no mention of worship. No mention of serving God. No mention of honoring God or honoring Christ. But men and women just given over to themselves and given over to the mundane affairs and the service of self. Then the judgment came. Again, verse 39. They didn't understand until a flood came and took them away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. So Christ tells his disciples, they ask, when are you coming? He says, look, there's a day, there's an hour coming, and it's going to come suddenly. And no one knows. Right? No one knows, not even the angels of heaven know, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Therefore, the point is, you must be what? Ready. You must be ready. You must be ready. You must be faithful. You must be watchful. You must be expectant. Right? You must be prepared. Because like in the days of Noah, just like our day, people just going through life, not ready, not prepared, not caring. And again, the text says they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. Christ goes on here and gives a second illustration, and he uses servants to help us understand this. Matthew 24, verse 42. Behold, he says, be on alert, for you don't know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, verse 44, you be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you don't think he will. Be on alert, right? Be on alert. We don't know when the Lord's coming, but we do know he is coming. Just not the hour of the day. 
Therefore, it would be wise again to look with constant expectation, constant watchfulness that he's coming. He's coming unexpectedly, and he's coming like a thief in the night. And the one who has a faithful servant, or the one who is a faithful servant to the master, he's going to be doing what he's been told to do, commanded to do, and he's going to be rewarded. Verse 45, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. Right? So the, the, the faithful uh, slave of the master is doing what God has commanded him or what the master has commanded him to do until he returns. But the wicked, the unbeliever, who doesn't believe that the master is coming back or the Lord is coming back at all, he's going to receive shame. He's going to be appropriately punished. Verse 48. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time, I shall begin to beat his fellow slaves. And he began to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, in an hour which he does not know, and shall cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites Weeping, uh, weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. Boy, I tell you what, this is a harsh judge, right? He's coming back. He's coming back like a thief in the night. He's coming back unexpectedly, and he's coming back sooner than you think. When he's on trial for his life, he's defending his deity. He boldly declares Mark 14, uh, 62. Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. Turn over to the book of John. John 14. Verse 2. This is the night of Christ's betrayal. And Christ tells his disciples, John 14, verse 2. He says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So, if Christ is not coming again, then he's a liar. But he's not, because his words are true and he can't lie. Right? I'm coming again. Turn over to the book of Acts. I referenced it earlier, but I want you to see it. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight. And they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing. Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. Verse 11. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking at the sky, or into the sky? Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So Christ literally physically came. Christ literally physically rose from the dead, literally physically ascended to heaven. And this Jesus, who's been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as he watched him go into heaven, which means literally and physically, not spiritually. Right? Literally and physically when he comes a second time. Now you have to wonder how people can miss this truth and say that Christ is not coming back and that Christ is not coming back literally and physically. You have to work pretty hard on it, I think, right? Because the text of Scripture so far is pretty clear, and we're only in the book of Acts, right? It's pretty clear on the issue. And if this world, this system, is the best as it gets, as some try to make us believe, it's a pretty sad situation. But it's not the best it gets. Right? And thank God that's true that Christ is coming again. Right? This is not all there is. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 4. Here again, Paul, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, is saying this, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Thank my God always concerning you for your for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, verse 5, that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ speaks to the second coming of the Lord, right? When he comes in full glory, full majesty, full honor. A time when all true believers will be forever holy without sin and full resurrected glory just like Christ. And they'll be with him forever in heaven. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we are eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3 and 4, when Christ, is, who is our life, is revealed at his second coming. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Turn over to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, verse 28. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this, So uh, Christ, also having been offered once to bear the sins for many, will appear a second time, for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. So the context here is the fact that the Old Testament high priest on the Day of Atonement, he went to the Holy of Holies to make sacrifice on behalf of the people, and the people were eagerly awaiting for him to return. And if he returned, that was a sign that his uh, uh, offering was uh, accepted. Uh, God was pleased and accepted again the sacrifice. So in the same way, the writer here is saying that the Lord Jesus Christ has been offered for our sins, and we eagerly await his return, right, his second coming. Again, it confirms again that the Father's pleasure is with him, that he has accepted the Son's sacrifice, you know, the sacrifice of his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. His return is coming, right? And when his return comes, then salvation in all its full um, ramifications will be finally consummated. James 5, I read it earlier, but James 5 is interesting because it's probably one of the first books written in the New Testament. James 5 you want to look or you can just listen however you want to do it Uh, James 5 verse 7 therefore be patient brethren until the coming of the Lord the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil being patient about it until he gets the early and the late rains verse 8 you too be patient strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near first Peter you're starting to get hope because I'm running out of books here in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And again, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So where are we to fix our hope? The newspaper? Evening news? Whatever pundit is in front of the camera? Are we to fix our hope looking for the signs of who the Antichrist might be? Are we to fix our hope on trying to figure out end-time events? Again, by reading headlines in our newspaper, no, Peter says, look, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on the second coming. 
when we're completely delivered from sin's presence. First Peter 5, 4 says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive un- the unfading crown of glory. When Christ comes back, we're like him, delivered from sin. Holy Spirit uses the same kind of uh, phraseology with the Apostle John to confirm the fact that Christ's return. Don't turn their elders give to you, First John 3 and 2. Beloved, we are now children of God. It is not as appeared as what we yet will uh, what we will be, we know that when he appears, we'll be like him. When he appears in the second coming, we'll be like him, see him just as he is. But go to the final book of the Bible, final book of the New Testament, the book of uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his bondservants things which must certainly take place, and sent him and communicated it to communicated by his angels to his bondservant John, verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven churches are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. From the seven spirits who are before the throne. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us both, uh, he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, and to him be the glory, dominion forever and ever. Verse 7 Behold, he is coming. Right? Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and even those who have been pierced, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, and so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, God, the one who is, the one who was and the one who is to come, the Almighty. All right, so here you got the last book of the Bible, just like the first book of the Bible, the promise of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have it here at the last book of the Bible right at the beginning, just like you had it at the beginning of the first book of the Bible. So the scripture points to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He points to him in the New Testament as the bridegroom who's coming back to claim his bride. Right? That means the church needs to get ready. We are the bride. We need to get ready. Right? Because the Lord Jesus Christ can come back any moment. Now, we're, we're are, we are well aware of John's vision, and he had vivid descriptions of the wedding supper that's coming. Uh, turn to Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Verse 7, Let us rejoice and be glad in it, and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen was the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He said to me, These words are true. Right? Christ paid the redemptive price for his bride. He's given gifts to her. He's gone to his father's house to prepare a place for her. And he's going to come again for her. And he's going to come literally and physically to claim her as his own. Right? Christ's second coming demands it. The marriage supper of the Lamb. The, the bridegroom rejoicing with his bride. Now, it's in the side margins. You don't see it there, but it's there. Trust me. Uh, the, the pie at the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to be pecan. And I'm pretty sure Joanna's going to be playing the harp in the background. Right? It, it's, it's in one of the variant textual readings somewhere. Christ is coming back. He's going to grab his bride. It's going to be a great day of celebration. And Christ is going to come back, and he's going to vanquish his foes, especially the devil. Just keep looking. Revelation 19, verse 20. 
Christ appears suddenly to destroy his enemies at the end. Right? Revelation 19.20. The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who has performed signs in his presence by which uh, the deceived, uh, which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his, Im- his image. These were two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Verse 21. The rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Right? Revelation chapter 20 also says that uh, Christ uh, binds Satan. He's bound for a thousand years. He's going to be released for a poor, short period of time to deceive the nations. But again, the devil's going to be captured. Verse 10 of Revelation 20 says this, The devil who deceived them was thrown to the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and, forever, day and night forever. So the Lord Jesus Christ has to come back to grab his church, to gather his church, and he has to come back to defeat his arch enemy, just like Genesis 3 promised his arch enemy, Satan. Now go just a page or two over to Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible. He said to me, these words are faithful and true. Revelation 22, verse 6, he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, uh, the God of uh, the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservant the things which must shortly take place. Verse 7, behold, Jesus says, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 10. He said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and last, beginning to end. Verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things. For the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David. The bright and morning star and the spirit of the bride says, Come, let the one who hears say, Come, let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take water without light, without cost. Verse 20 He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord be with you all. So, the last book of the Bible, the last page of the Bible, the last verse of the last book, the last page of the Bible, the last promise of the entire Bible concerns the promise of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. First book in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. The last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. The first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew. The last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, give testimony to the fact that Jesus is coming in. Have I made my point yet? Are you getting it? He's coming back. The last words are kind of important, aren't they, right? And here, God's last revealed word to us for his, to his, to us, his church is a promise that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back and he's coming back quickly. So again, why do men refuse to believe that truth? Why do they refuse to believe the promises of the word of God? Ultimately, as I've been telling you all along in the morning, is because they don't want to. They don't want to. They're unwilling. It's rebellion. So the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, however, for us that are part of the body of Christ, we who are the bride, it's the blessed hope of the church. And we should be talking about this, not whatever kind of craziness dead people are talking about on TV. Right? We should be talking about this. We should be encouraged by this. And we should be encouraging each other. You know, I know it's tough, brother. I know it's tough, sister. But guess what? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. Amen? Let's get our minds focused on something that's hopeful and something that's helpful, not not that ball bearing that's turning into like a bowling ball in your head going like this. I can't deal with all the nonsense. You can't deal with all the nonsense because dead people's have depraved minds. They don't. They can't make logical decisions. Step away, take a breath, realize what you're seeing, what it is. It's depravity on display. It's the unregenerate mind that can't think, make a logical decision. 
It's those who hate God, those who hate Christ. Again, are not leading us to God in Christ. They're leading us away from God in Christ. They're not doing anything that's hopeful or helpful. Just more confusion. Why should we? Why would we be a part of that? Right? If something really important happens, I bet we'll know. Right? But we don't have to be stuck in the sewer all the time in the muck that the world is in because the world has no hope because the world doesn't know truth. The second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is the blessed hope of the church. Therefore, we should, as the church, be expecting him to come at any moment. We're not to be looking for any other kind of signs except the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the consistent teaching of the Bible. That's the consistent teaching of the New Testament text. He could return at any moment. That was the consistent teaching and understanding, again, in the very earliest days of the church. The first generation of Christians expected the sudden, sudden imminent return of Christ at any moment. And again, I just read it just a few seconds ago out of James, right? It's one of the earliest uh, writers of the New Testament. Be patient until the coming of the Lord, right? Be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, behold, the judge is standing at the door. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as the habit of song, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, verse 37, for yet in a very little while, yet he who is coming will come and he will not delay. John 1, 28, I mean, it just goes on and on. Right, John, 1 John 2 and 28, Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. 1 John 3 and 2, 2 Timothy 4 and 8, 1 Peter 5, 4. I mean, just when the chief shepherd appears, right? I mean, his promises over and over again. So you start putting all these together, right? The coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The end of all things is at hand. As you see the day drawing near, he who is coming will come. He will not delay when he appears, when Christ is revealed. All who have loved his appearing, when the chief shepherd comes. They are all phrases that suggest the early church expected the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ at any moment. All of that phraseology is language of imminency. It's language that speaks to the fact that Christ could return at any time. That's the doctrinal teaching that permeates the entire New Testament. Paul even used personal pronouns when he was thinking about this because he was convinced that the Lord might come in his lifetime, that he would be alive and he would be caught up to meet the Lord, 1 Thessalonians 4.15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. I mean, Paul was looking for the return of Christ. He wasn't focusing on his troubles. He wasn't focusing on his persecution. He wasn't focusing on how corrupt the Roman government was. <laughs> Can you imagine, right? He was focusing on Christ in his lifetime, the return of Christ. He made it a point of watchful, hopeful expectancy that Christ could return at any moment and he would be with his Lord. So the question has got to be going through your mind at this point is how do you answer the skeptics who say that Christ's coming could not possibly have been imminent in the mind of the early church, especially since it's been another 2,000 years since these verses were penned and Christ still has not returned. Because that's what the skeptic does. The skeptic likes to come and ridicule the Bible, challenge Christianity on its inerrancy and the truthfulness on the Scripture. And this is one of the battlegrounds, right? This is one of the battleground points, right? The, the imminency of the coming of Christ. Well, it was the Lord Jesus Christ himself who said in Matthew 24, 48, you don't know the hour. You don't know the hour of the Lord's coming. 
Time was hidden, hidden from us, right? Time's hidden from us, it's hidden from the apostles, but nevertheless, the teaching of the scriptures is that Christ could come at any moment. The teaching of the scriptures, the judge is standing at the door. He's at hand. There's no other events that must occur in the prophetic calendar before the return of Christ. None. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that some people teach we shouldn't be looking for the imminent return of Christ, but for the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, we should be looking for the signs of the Antichrist. They believe that the Lord Jesus Christ comes only after the church has gone through the tribulation. And I think that's a misunderstanding of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and specifically the context in which it was written, but I don't have time to go into that now since it's late. But I can say this, First Thessalonians 5 said, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's us in the context? The church. God has not destined us for wrath, for obtaining sal- but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Second Thessalonians doesn't change that. The Bible does not teach that God's people, the church, is going to go through what is known as the tribulation. I don't see anywhere in the scripture where God tells his people to prepare for his coming wrath against them. Why is that? Because sin's already been paid for. Our sin's already been paid for by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We who already believe are accepted before the Father, adopted into his family. So the idea that the church is going to have to endure God's wrath during the time of the tribulation is completely inconsistent with both what the Scripture teaches and the nature and the character of God himself. Again, Second Thessalonians doesn't change that. It doesn't change the consistent teaching of the New Testament that Christians should be looking for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ for his church at any moment. Christ's coming is imminent, it was imminent, in the days of the early church, and even more so now, would not you think, 2,000 years down the road? We should therefore be the generation that is especially watchful, especially ready, because the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is an urgent issue for us as we see the day drawing near, right, with each passing day. Again, we're 2,000 years closer to this certain scriptural event that God has promised. I guess it's possible that Christ could delay another 2,000 years or longer, but it would be hard to imagine that, looking at the world and the state that the world is in. But the issue of when he comes really isn't the issue. The real issue is that we need to be ready for his coming. We need to be prepared, whether his come, he comes immediately or his coming is delayed. Time, again, is a man issue. It's not a God issue. God is external to time. Right? He's the eternal Lord. A day for him is as a... Uh, a thousand years is as a day, right? A day, a thousand years, right? And, and so 2,000 years is just a couple of days in God's economy. So the amount of earthly time that passes by really is of no consequence. And it's really irrelevant, irre- uh, again, from God's viewpoint of time. And it's irrelevant from the viewpoint of the truthfulness of the Scripture because the Scripture will be fulfilled because God's not a liar. Uh, the, the, the word, His word will be carried out. And no amount of time can ever nullify God's promises. So the reason that the Lord delays in his coming is not negligence in fulfilling his promise, but rather the reason that the Lord delays in his coming is because he wants to display his grace. He's looking for, and he's long-suffering towards those who want to repent. He's a long-suffering, kind God. He's not willing for Christ to return until God's merciful purposes of redemption are complete. So God, again, is long-suffering. He delays Christ's coming. He delays his wrath until his mercy has been exhausted and all the elect come to saving faith in Christ. So again, Christ's return is imminent. It's our great hope, something we need to think about and consider. But listen, it's also the ultimate motivation for how we live life now presently. It's the ultimate motivation for godly living, for holiness. 
right? Because the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at any moment has a powerful, sanctifying, purifying effect on us. The knowledge that Christ could come any moment should draw us nearer to God, nearer to Christ, and should motivate us to prepare ourselves that we would pursue Christ's likeness, that we would put off the deeds of uh, of darkness, that we would put off everything that pertains to our former way of living, that we would purify ourselves just as he is pure. First John 3 and 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Right? So believing in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ should cause us to live our lives with a certain sense of urgent expectation and live obediently to everything Christ commands us to do and to live holy lives. Right? And Paul in the book of Romans says, look, the night's almost gone, the day's at hand. He says, let us lay aside all the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly in the day, not as carousing and drunkenness, not as sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife or jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh regards to its lust. The day, the night is almost gone. The day is almost here, right? When the sun comes up in the morning, what does it do? It drives away the darkness, right? The bright light of the sun, right? And so it's to the coming of the second, second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate bright light, the ultimate sun, right? He comes and it drives away the darkness of sin and rebellion. So a person who calls themselves a Christian, yet they're not living a life of holiness and obedience, has not grasped the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. A professing Christian who's caught up in the affairs of the, of the world and not passionately consumed with the dear person of the Lord Jesus Christ has not properly understood uh, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've not understood that the bride, bridegroom is coming for his church at any moment, coming for his bride. If we truly understand the doctrine, then we presently should be living out the light of that truth, the expectant return of Christ at any moment. And again, it should radically, fundamentally alter the way that we live our lives. Again, we should be consumed with Christ and we should be consumed with holiness. Go back, and I'm going to finish it very quickly. Go back to where we started, the book of, uh, of uh, Titus. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Right? That's the first coming of Christ. His appearance brings grace, mercy, justification for us before the Father. Salvation from sin. Verse 14. Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Many Christ has come, he's redeemed us, he's set us free from the slavery of sin. He's purified us for himself to be people zealous for good deeds, right? He's changed us and redeemed us so that we might look like him, that we might show what it looks like to a dying world, what it means to be saved. We might demonstrate the transforming power of Christ in our lives to live in such a way that people would ask us, what in the world's wrong with us? Why aren't we scared? Why are we going out and partying? Why aren't we getting drunk? Why aren't we? No, because I have a hope. I have a hope. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. It's that hope that we have in the coming of Christ that causes us to no longer let sin reign in our mortal body, right? To deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, right? The fact that Christ could come in any moment has to drive us to holiness, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, 
verse 12, to live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, right? Because we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to refrain from sin, turn away from sin, right? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we live sensibly, righteously, godly in the present age, right? When you have a genuine encounter with the risen Christ, it changes your life. And that encounter with Christ causes you to hate your sin. And that encounter with Christ encourages you to long for His coming. And aren't you just sick of the nonsense? Come, Lord Jesus, right? Maranatha. Come. Frustrated with the world, frustrated with sin. The redeemed always do this, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. When when are we to do that? When are we to be looking for the blessed hope? When are we to be looking for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ? Look at the phrase right before that sentence. In the present age. Right now, right? Not some other time. Right now. It, it's the language of imminency. Right? Again, we as God's people shouldn't be caught up in the affairs of the world, that we should be passionately caught up and consumed with our focus, our attention, the love of our hearts, the things that come out of our mouth should be all pointing to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed hope, because of his imminent return. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for that wonderful, wonderful truth that's found in, in your word, as we just saw from the beginning to the end, the promise of the coming of Christ, which is our hope. We, as your children, have not been left here. You've not abandoned us, but you've given us reason to hope from beginning to end. And may we focus on those truths. And we have our hearts set on Christ. May we encourage each other with this hope. And again, not be caught up in the affairs of a dead, dying world that's headed towards judgment. Help us to encourage each other. Help us to encourage those around whom you might be speaking to and calling them to yourself, that they too can have a hope in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. We thank you, Lord, for your kindness, for the time of fellowship, for allowing us to meet physically here both morning and evening. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.